0: at Brian McClanahan, like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts at my webpage, com. That's B R I O N, com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to com. Academy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do so, and I have eight classes available for purchase. If you want to help me pay for this podcast, you can do so by getting something for it. I mean, you get the podcast for free, but you might as well get something else too. So go to Academy.com, purchase a course or eight, and help support the show. You can also go to McClanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going, or you can order your book plate. And uh, you can get my autograph on any one of my books. Great way to support the show as well. Also, while you're at excuse me, click on that shop tab at the top of the page. It'll take you out to my web store where you can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a great way to support the show and advertise the show. And, of course, you can go to anchor.fm, which is the new host for the show, the new uh, hosting service. Not only can you leave a message for me, and you might get on the show, but... You can also support the show there, too. So a lot of great ways to support the show. And, again, there's always LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn T-R-U-E, T-R-U-E History.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom, where I teach along with Tom and Kevin Goodsman and Brad Berzer and Jason Juro and Bob Murphy. A lot of great instructors, over 20 classes. And uh, you get uh, a lot of bang for your buck there. And if you le- use my affiliate link, you also help support this show. So... Rate the show on Apple Podcasts, share it around on social media, rate it on Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. One of the things that I found funny about the ratings, a lot of people don't like my intro music. Well, that intro music puts hair on your chest, so you gotta, you got to listen to that one. I mean, it's, uh, it's just there for the pure manliness of it. So, that's all I'll say about that, and the outro as well. Now, let's talk about the topic of the day, and it's an essay that just appeared... It's book review of a forthcoming book that I have not read yet, and because uh, I didn't get an advance copy, I'll have to uh, complain to Paul Gottfried about this. Um, but the title of the book is The Vanishing Tradition, Perspective on American Conservatism. And uh, Paul Gottfried is the editor of the book. It comes out in July of 2020. And it's a collection of essays on American conservatism. This particular review is written by David Gordon. And, of course, Paul and David are, are good friends. Um, I had the pleasure of being on a panel with both of them this last uh, year at Mises. Um, it was just the three of us. It was myself, Paul, and and and, uh, and uh, David. And um, it was a, a wonderful panel. Um, and so you have this collection of essays and the ideas to discuss what's happened to American conservatism. And this is something I've talked about on this show several times, but um, there are some interesting parts of this. And I think what David Gordon does more than anything else is is pull out the foreign policy side of it. This is something I talk about quite extensively in my survey courses at McClanahan Academy and my course on reconstruction at McClanahan Academy. Foreign policy determines domestic policy. It's something Ron Paul has said over and over again, but it's it's true. Because of the expansion of foreign policy, we've had an expansion of an of the of the presidency of the executive branch, uh, because of the role in the world for the American Empire. And I mean, you can go back to Lincoln with this. I mean, look, the war itself was a foreign policy problem i mean just because the united states government did not recognize the confederacy and just because the british or the french or any other foreign power did not recognize the confederacy didn't mean it wasn't de facto if not in my opinion de jure a legal government and so it was a foreign policy issue even northern newspapers who had, were pro lincoln began to pick up on this i mean you're waging war against a foreign entity without a declaration. That's unconstitutional. It's illegal. Lincoln should have been impeached for that. But that's beside the point. Because of that war, if you look at what Lincoln was able to do with, with executive power, when you look at, for example, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, which I just talked about in a previous uh, episode in the 13th Amendment. But when you look at the Uh, Emancipation Proclamation. It was a war measure, as Lincoln himself said. An unconstitutional war measure. Now, we can say that emancipating slaves was a very good thing. How it was done uh, was problematic legally and maybe even uh, set back race relations and uh, the future prospects for black Americans for decades. Uh, This is something that both sides, Southerners, even said, you know, "What do you? You can't just immediate abolition. It's it's going to be a disaster, not just for society, but also for the slaves themselves." In their opinion, of course, these are that's an unpopular opinion nowadays. But when you look at foreign policy, it certainly is a driving force in the unconstitutional expansion of executive power. Judge Napolitano also had a piece at Lou Rockwell this today, and I'm reading this, November 21st, um, about the imperial presidency. Two very good pieces, but I just talked about uh, Judge Napolitano, so I wanted to focus on this. So I'm going to read this particular review, and I'll stop and talk about certain points on it that I find interesting. Uh, But uh, Gordon begins, Paul Gottfried's excellent anthology of essays on American conservatives chronicles a key phenomenon of our times. Understanding it is important not only for those like Gottfried and his contributors who are traditionalist conservative, but for anyone concerned with freedom. The phenomenon in question is the takeover of American conservatism by neoconservatives. Now, oftentimes that term neoconservative, as people say, it's a pejorative. You can't—it's awful to call these people neoconservatives. They call themselves that. (laughs) When when the Crystals began this. Movement. They called themselves the neoconservatives. This wasn't something made up and slapped on them. It's what they called themselves. were the neoconservatives. Now, of course, oh, well, you—it's it's a pejorative. You can't, uh, you can't, you can't do that. You can't call us that. Well, that's what you called yourself. So, of course, that's what you are. You're new conservatives. You were. Leftists, and there were a lot of conservatives who were leftists. Even Richard Weaver was a socialist at one time. There are a lot of conservatives who moved from that to the other. But the neoconservatives are a particular brand, and I think, you know, more than anything else, they're, they're, um, of course, foreign policy is a key for them. Um, And that's why this essay is so focused on foreign policy. But uh, when you look at the welfare state, the New Deal, the expansion of federal power. I mean, they were fine with it. They thought it went a little bit too far, but they were fine with it in principle. The traditionalist conservatives were against it in principle. Neoconservatives, not so much. So we could call this dynamic conservatism, which is what Eisenhower called it. We could call it compassionate conservatism, which is what George W. Bush called it. It doesn't matter. It's neoconservatism. George W. Bush was a neoconservative. George H.W. Bush was a neoconservative. They may not, those two individuals may not have called themselves that, but that's what they were. So, God, uh, I'm sorry, Gordon continues. Why should this development concern us? In brief, the neocons interested in their own agenda have joined with the left in enforcing a public orthodoxy that excludes certain views from discussion. This is why in the piece that I talked about on moderate Republicans, this is exactly what... Yanni Applebaum wants. He wants the neoconservatives in power because they agree. (laughs) They're not problematic. They're basically leftists with a little different foreign policy agenda. But I'm not even certain that's the case all the time. Look, Hillary Clinton's foreign policy was completely in line with the neoconservatives. As Gottfried explains, we might note some of the offenses for which an older right was read out of the movement by the 1990s. Such presumed enormities included opposing the first Gulf War, supporting Patrick Buchanan's presidential bid in 1992 and complaining about the influence of the American Israeli lobby. That part right there is one of the reasons why the traditionalist conservatives, if you say anything critical about the Israeli lobby, it's not saying, any, look, Paul Gottfried is Jewish. It's not saying anything about Jewish people. It's the influence that the Israeli lobby has in American foreign policy which we know is substantial and, of course, brings the United States into conflict in the Middle East. I mean, this is something, it's a policy critique, not a cultural or religious critique. Some of these same people have also been critical of the cultural effects of third world, third world immigration, the extensions of the Voting Rights Act that would increase the electoral strength of the left and bring the electoral process almost totally under federal Administrative control and the elevation of Martin Luther King, a controversial figure of the left in his own time, to iconic status with a national holiday. So all of these things are now uh, outside of the purview of acceptable thought. You can't you can't criticize uh, Martin Luther King, even though the left does. I mean, even though that recently, I mean, there's been attacks on King in his character that the left has even admitted. Yeah, I mean, these things are pretty accurate. Um, plagiarizing a dissertation, all of the extramarital affairs, all the things that were happening with King. Um, and of course, King being a communist, and this was, he was further left than most. And I know by saying that, a lot of conservatives, neoconservatives go nuts. No, 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 no. you can't say that. He was a conservative. No, he was a communist. I mean, this is clear. Um, and federal control of elections. I mean, this is this is the National Popular Vote Initiative. I know the states are driving that. But essentially what we want to do is nationalize everything. Can't, have an, yeah, can't show an ID to vote, but you have to show an ID to do other things. But voting, no, no, no. Uh, you should just be able to walk in if you can breathe. You don't have to prove who you are. Just say who you are and you're going to vote. I mean, this is because it's all about power. The neoconservatives and the left, I mean, the progressives in general, neoconservatives are progressives. They are interested in power and the expansion of power of their own power. Obviously, those who favor the suppressed position should be concerned, but others should be as well. The left, joined by the neocons, not only insists on its agenda, but will not allow dissent. If, for example, you don't think that Martin Luther King was a moral saint, as more than one eminent philosopher has termed him, the left will not try to show that your arguments for your view are mistaken. It will deny you a forum to express your arguments at all, and then try to destroy you personally. Even if you admire King or accept other tenets of the public orthodoxy, you should be troubled by the suppression of free speech. This is very true. I mean, Gordon's looking at this from a libertarian standpoint. And what's funny, on the Amazon page, this book is ranking libertarianism, and Gottfried is not a libertarian. But um, these views, uh, and, and of course the commonality between the old right and the libertarians, Murray Rothbard in many ways being the glue, important. Um, the, The idea that we cannot express certain views that are deemed controversial is highly problematic. I mean, the reason that we have these things is for controversial views. The reason that we have civil liberties the way we do is not to protect what everyone thinks. It's to protect what those who don't think like everyone thinks. This is where the Quakers are so interesting in American history. They were um, certainly committed to a reciprocal liberty. And I've talked about this again on the, on this uh, on this show, but they their liberty was reciprocal, meaning that if they demanded free speech, they would give it to you as well. If they demanded freedom of religion, they would give it to you as well. So you could stand in the face of a Quaker and say, your religion is complete garbage. And you are an idiot. And you you could denounce them, you could criticize them, and they would say you have every right to say that. And they they wouldn't like it, but they wouldn't try to stop you from saying it. That's a Leninist approach. The Leninist approach is, yeah, you can say what you want, but I have the right to shoot you for saying it. This is what the left, this is why the left and the neoconservatives are Leninists. Not even Marx went that far, but Lenin did. The Leninists were those that would try to suppress. They would say you have a right to do it, but then I can kill you for it. That's Leninism. That's on the way to totalitarian communism. Gordon continues, Two of the contributors, Keith Preston and Boyd D. Cathy, discuss in detail one smear campaign against a dissenter from the official truth. This was directed at Mel Bradford, a literary scholar and historian who criticized Abraham Lincoln. In 1981, Ronald Reagan intended to nominate Bradford to head the National Endowment for the Humanities. And Bradford's opinion about Lincoln would, on the surface, seem irrelevant to his fitness for the post. But Lincoln's role as the savior of the Union and scourge of slavery is a key part of our public orthodoxy. The left joined forces with the neocons to strike at Bradford. Preston writes, quote, As a legal scholar, Bradford was an advocate of a strict constructionist approach to interpreting the Constitution. His view of the American founding as a conservative revolution and his offense of the South against what he considered to be the usurpations of state sovereignty by President Lincoln during the Civil War. aroused neocon ire. End quote. Well, this is exactly what happened. I've talked about the Bradford ostr- uh, ostracizing um, on this particular show and how that split the conservative movement and um, in the 1980s. And I, I wrote about that in uh, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, which should have gotten more publicity right I mean that book very proud of that book uh, Clyde Wilson and I published it I uh, wrote it and, and published it and um, maybe one day we'll we'll buy the rights back to it and we'll we'll publish it ourselves turn it around do something else with it. Uh, but it is a this is key because he'd attacked Lincoln Bradford had to be denied the nomination Among the prominent neoconservatives who expressed opposition to Bradford were Irving Crystal. Crystal, a former Trotskyite and the co-editor of The Public Interest, who is credited with having coined the term neoconservative. The neoconservative movement's other leading intellectual, Norman Puttertz, another former leftist and the publisher of Commentary Magazine, also expressed opposition to Bradford's nomination. So, I mean, the, the neoconservatives were all on board with it. Bill Bennett was behind it. They were all on board. Why? Because Bradford was not following the public orthodoxy, as David Gordon says, and he was criticizing Lincoln. And, of course, Lincoln is the key to everything. Lincoln is the key to the modern neoconservative or conservative inc. establishment conservative right. Before I continue, I'm going to take a break for a second. I'll be right back after just a few minutes. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video I talked about, McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time. The curriculum get worse. And students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that, and this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, and it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free, and I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do, but I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got... Enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school h- history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back, and we're talking about neoconservatism in this forthcoming book by Paul Gottfried that everyone should go out and pre-order. You're going to want it. The title of the book is "The Vanishing Tradition: Perspective on American Conservatism." Now. I'm going to continue this essay by David Gordon, published at leerockwell.com. David Gordon is a brilliant guy um, and one who is uh, um, in tune with the historiography. I mean, this is something that Gordon is so good at, historiography. Uh, But anyways, let's continue with this piece. He says, Gordon says, why are the neocons willing to join forces with the left? Doing so permits them to advance more effectively their own goals. Strong support for Israel and for an interventionist foreign policy. So, here is the key. It is foreign policy. This is the neoconservative. I mean, look, at at its core neoconservatism, is concerned about foreign policy. Marjorie Jeffrey gets at the heart of the matter. Quote, In what may be considered one of the founding documents of what became Bush-era neoconservatism, William Kristol and Robert Kagan wrote in Toward a Neo-Reaganite Foreign Policy that instead of either Clinton's Wilsonian multilateralism or Buchanan's neo-isolationism, America should seek a policy of benevolent global hegemony. Those who opposed this policy were assailed. Quote, Against these efforts opposing war, David Frum penned his famous Unpatriotic Conservatives essay in the pages of National Review, charging anti-war conservatives and libertarians with being anti-American. They have made common cause with the left-wing and Islamist anti-war movements in this country and in Europe. This is what David Frum said. They deny and excuse terror. They espouse a potentially self-fulfilling defeatism. They publicize wild conspiracy theories, and some of them explicitly yearn for the victory of the nation's enemies. I mean, David Frum is just a complete moron. It's not what these it's not what the the non-interventionists want, not at all. What Frum doesn't realize is that a lot of the problems that we have, as the CIA has clearly outlined, is called blowback. I mean, look, you go in and overthrow, or you go in and overthrow the Iranian government in 1953, you're going to create problems. You support the Shah. And you're going to have problems. This is clear. You support a a, a state in the Middle East that everyone doesn't like, and you're going to have problems for that. I mean, this this is what you get out of that. You create a massive defensive alliance called NATO during the Cold War, and you're going to have blowback from that. If you have the CIA going into every single country in the world, it seems like, and destabilizing, you're going to have problems from that. I mean... It's it's clear that the CIA recognized this, but somehow, no, 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 the neoconservatives, that's not the promise. They just don't like us because they don't like our way of life. Yeah. I mean, it's clear when <laughs> when uh, they don't really like our way of life. That's not true at all. Um, what they don't like is American imperial power. Now, you could say, well, that's feeding right into the Chinese or the, or the Soviets because if we're not an imperial power, well, they're going to win out. Um, possibly. I mean, but on the other hand, uh, there, there's, as things come out of the Soviet Union, they were concerned about our imperial power, which is why they were imperial. I mean, so you look at, there, there's a give and take in all of this. As Jeffrey accurately notes, Ron Paul has with characteristically Characteristic insight brought into question whether an interventionist foreign policy is in America's interests, for he, for this, he has been vilified. Preston in his excellent essay makes the same criticism of neocon foreign policy, but he wrongly traces interventionism to the Jacobins. A former assistant secretary of the Treasury during the Reagan administration, Paul Craig Roberts has described the foreign policy views of the neoconservatives as emanating from the fanaticism that emerged during the French Revolution observing there is nothing conservative about neoconservatives. Neocons hide behind conservatives, but they are in fact Jacobins. Jacobins were the 18th century French revolutionaries who intention to remake Europe, and revolutionary France's image launched the Napoleonic Wars. A similar critique of the neoconservatives has been offered by the conservative scholar Claes Rin, The Jacobins... In fact, Gordon says, we're mainly concerned with internal reform. It was a Gironde that wished to spread the revolution abroad. And this is true. I mean, he's he's splitting hairs here, but it's true. Um, But I think tracing this to to the French Revolution is entirely correct. Look, the French Revolution is the event that created the mess in which we exist today. Not the American War for Independence. I mean, people say, well, the American War for Independence started all. this because of that. that the French rose up. Certainly, the the early French Revolution, even Lafayette thought that the American model was good. But what they wanted was a British parliamentary system by keeping the king. I mean, originally, the, the moderates, this is all they were looking for. It's just that the radicals were able to overtake that and, of course, lead the revolution in a far different path. But the important part of this is that when the French Revolution... Became aggressive in Europe, and that led to the Napoleonic Wars. One of the things the Napoleonic Wars did was unleash nationalism on Europe, and because of that nationalism, you get later get the German unification movement, you get the Italian unification movement. It's not to say that this stuff wasn't there; it was. It was. I mean, but you had um, this French revolutionary-style state worship unleashed on the rest of Europe. And of course, with the unification of Germany accomplished through the Franco-Prussian War, now you have a large German empire, which is being opposed by the other powers of Europe. And that's going to lead to uh, World War I, which is going to lead to World War II, which is going to lead to the Cold War, which is going to lead to the War on Terror. I mean, the French Revolution set in, set in place all of these things. I mean, the radical transformation of Europe, not just through war, which is a major, major driving factor, but also the cultural transformation of Europe. It's the French Revolution. So, I mean, look, uh, Paul Craig Roberts is right about this. They might be wrong about blaming it on the Jacobins. You can say it's on the Girondists. Uh, But the Girondists were eventually wiped out, and of course the Jacobins would be completely behind this massive uh, war that uh, engulfed Europe during the French Revolution. Gordon continues, but this minor error pales into significance when put beside Preston's indispensable point, also drawn from Wrenn. Quote, the ongoing project of the neoconservatives has been to purge from the American right any tendency that is suspected of opposing aggressive military interventionism. The revolutionary spread of democratic capitalism on an international level, the geopolitical agenda of Israel's Luke, uh, Likud party, or the cultural values of urban cosmopolitanism. Meanwhile, the neoconservative will make common calls with anyone on the left they deem aggressively militarist enough. I mean, Hillary Clinton was a neoconservative. Is a neoconservative in many ways. I mean, this is what she is. You want to vote for a conservative? She voted for Hillary Clinton. I mean, a neoconservative. That's what she is. The neoconservatives are all on board with everything Clinton suggested. There was nothing about Hillary Clinton that wasn't favored by the neoconservatives. This is why you had the never Trumpers. The never Trumpers are neoconservatives. Trump, at least rhetorically, advocated a foreign policy. And potentially a domestic policy that was at odds with the neoconservative progressive hegemony of the American political order. So, he has to be eliminated. And they've been trying for three years to do it. It has to happen. He, he He's the anomaly. I mean... <laughs> If you look at and I just watched the other night again, The Matrix, the first Matrix. It is such a phenomenal movie, even 20 years later, because you have the one. He's the anomaly. In fact, I think all these people that make these uh, that make these little uh, you know memes and little videos by putting Trump's head. I mean, they should have done it with The Matrix and fighting Smith, because look, the neoconservatives. And the left, they're all just the agents, right? And so, uh, <laughs> you know, having Trump putting Trump's head on Neo would have been funny when he's fighting the the agents. Um, but, I mean, this is it. Neo's the anomaly. And this is what they call him. We have the anomaly. Uh, and Trump's the anomaly. He has to be eliminated. They have to get rid of him. Uh, so, of course, that particular film has a leftist bent in a lot of ways. But the fact is, you have this structure that's been created. I mean, that The Matrix is not supposed to be a documentary. But this is what it's turning into, right? But you have this structure that's created, this political, economic, social structure that's created. And if you have an anomaly, well, then the system, the machine, has to get rid of it. It's the only thing it knows how to do. It's a... Trumpism is a virus, a computer virus that has to be eliminated. The problem is they're having a hard time doing it because you have other people out there that are saying, we we don't like you. We don't like your system. We don't like what you've created. We don't like it. And so this is the matrix. Um. Goring continues, the neocons favor principles that are universally true, regardless of historical time and circumstance. Um, and this is the contributors attacking these things um, um, because they're pointing out the errors of the neocons. The content- this contention seems to me mistaken. Isn't the problem rather that neocons favor the wrong universal principles? If, like Murray Rothbard, we support self-ownership, property rights, and peace, we would not fall victim to neocon delusions." Mention of Rothbard, of course, brings to mind that he too was the victim of smear campaigns by both Buckley's National Review and the neocons. As Gottfried remarks, quote, In some cases, however, those thrown off the bus were subject to at least intermittent abuse intended to justify their fall. This happened in a particularly bizarre way to Murray Rothbard, in the form of an obituary that Buckley inserted into National Review shortly after Rothbard's death. Here, Buckley offered a comparison between Rothbard and cult leader David Koresh. Neither apparently had more than a handful of followers. Rothbard had as many disciples as David Koresh had in his readout in Waco. Yes, Rothbard believed in freedom. David Koresh believed in God. If it had not been enough for National Review's founder to scold Rothbard during his lifetime. I mean, this is where Buckley is just um, a absolute jerk, snob. And someone we shouldn't even admire in any particular way, but of course, mainstream conservatism. Buckley's a god almost. If you watch Buckley, I mean, if you've ever watched his show, he's slovenly. He slouches over, rubs his hair all the time. uh, It seems to me that, uh, and he's this is supposed to be high-minded. You know, this is high-minded discourse, as he's a slob. Yes, uh, well, um, it seems to me that uh, and this is with his uh, fake intellectual accent. Fortunately, neither Buckley nor the neocons succeeded in suppressing Rothbard. His teaching continues to guide and inspire us. So um, I like this essay. I think David Gordon does a wonderful job again of getting to the heart of the problem in American society, American politics, which is neoconservatism, but by default, it's essentially progressivism. I mean, this is, it is the key in understanding what goes on in American uh, political discourse today. The left is going to join sides. This is where I had that, I mean, I had that long discussion of this and the, can a moderate Republicans save us? No, moderate Republicans are really the problem. And the problem with, again, Applebaum's piece and everything that the neoconservatives and the left believe is that Somehow the right is really the issue. They're the anomaly. Everything else is just normal. And so we got the, the anomaly has to be eliminated. But really the left is the abnormal. It's been the abnormal since the late 18th century. But somehow because of this moral righteousness. I think this is the key to it all. They have a supposed moral superiority and righteousness. Their position is the moral one, whereas the right are just mean people who just want to abuse people. They're selfish. And it's the left, it's the, it's the progressives who are supposedly helping everyone. You have every right to say we're bad people, but then we can kill you for it because you're the anomaly. Not, maybe not even physically, but they're going to uh, dox you De-platform you do whatever they can to get it to where you're not being listened to any longer. This is where people are getting tired of this stuff, and they recognize it for what it is. It's Leninism. It's Leninism, and it's dangerous. So I like this essay. Go out and buy this new book by Paul Gottfried. Uh, pre-order it. it. doesn't come out for another six months, <clears throat> but uh, six, seven months, actually. But uh, you, I'm sure you won't be disappointed in it, and I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan. Show.